Good morning. It's good to see every one of you here today. Appreciate um, each one of you. It's good to be back. I am here to tell you um, as a testimony to heaven and hell that um, you want to go to heaven. We were in Texas for seven days and it didn't get below 110 during the day. And it was like going from, when you go from the air conditioning to the outside, it was like walking into a sauna. And so I'm just here to tell you, hell's going to be a lot worse than that, I'm sure, but um, I like it here. I wouldn't want to live there. So anyway, but yeah, it's good to be back. I want to thank Ryan for uh, stepping in for me. I do appreciate that very much. And um, But today, well, actually, after today, the next eight weeks, I'm going to do a sermon series called Mail Call. And it's going to be, we're going to be dealing with looking at Revelations chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going we're gonna to take a look at the, the seven churches of Revelation, and we're going to talk about each one of them and how they compare to our church, to the church in general, um, and to the present day. And I think that there's a real, a really a lot of great information there that um, will help us in our Christian walk. And so that's what we're going to be doing after this Sunday for the next eight Sundays, maybe maybe nine, but... It's looking like eight right now, but I want to begin, and I just want to kind of clarify for you today, the the sermon title is called, What Inalienable Rights? And this message is going to be a lot of um, history, a lot of history. And so, you know, I, I just want you to know that um, I wanted to do a Independence Day message. And so I want to begin with this statement here. It says, liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it derived from our maker. But if we had not, our fathers have earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasure, and their blood. Who made that statement? Does anybody know? Our, the second president of the United States, John Adams. John Adams is the one that said that. John Adams also said this. He said, July 4th ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to the Almighty God. And boy, I, I totally agree with him on that. <clears throat> it was during World War II that a young soldier by the name of David Webster of Easy Company of the 101st Airborne wrote to his mom. And, you know, she must have been a worrier, like all moms are when it comes to their boys being gone like that. So he wrote to her, and this is what he said to her. He said, stop worrying about me. I joined the parachutists to fight. I intend to fight. If necessary, I shall die fighting. But don't worry about this, because no war can be won without young men and women dying. You know, and those things are 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 precious and are 
you know, and are saved only by sacrifice. Our freedom was bought with a price, and and it's a sacrifice. And that's what this young man was trying to tell his mom, is that freedom is bought with blood. It's, It's bought by sacrifice. Freedom requires sacrifice. And as I was doing my research on this, I want you to know that I some of the stuff I'm going to tell you, I, I didn't even know myself. But in 1776, how many how many signatures are on the Declaration of Independence? Does anybody know how many men signed that? Does anybody have any idea? I heard 54. I heard 57. Well, let's let's try 56 men. <laughs> you were close. 56 men signed a document handwritten by who? Thomas Jefferson, that's right, called the Declaration of Independence. Their conviction lead to sacrifice and untold suffering for themselves and their families. You know, most of us would probably sit there and think, well, they signed the Declaration of Independence and that was it. You know, we were free, you know. But that's not what it was all about, folks. Of the 56 men that signed that Declaration of Independence, five were captured by the British and they were tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burnt. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships over the war. This fellow by the name of Carter Braxton was one of them that signed it. He was from Virginia. He was a wealthy planter and trader. He saw his ship sunk by the British Navy. You know, he he sold his home and his properties to pay his debts, and he died in poverty. At the Battle of Yorktown, the British general, uh, Cornwallis, had overtaken Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. And I think, I want to say, but I'm not 100% sure, but in the movie The Patriot, if you ever remember watching The Patriot, Cornwallis is in that house. They portray that house. That house uh, belonged to Thomas Nelson. Nelson told General George Washington to open fire on his home. The home was destroyed and Nelson died bankrupt. John Hart. I have an, I have an uncle named John Hart. <laughs> John Hart, who also signed the Declaration of Independence there, was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and, and the mill were destroyed. For over a year, he lived in the forest and in caves, returning home only to find his wife dead and all of his children, his 13 children, had vanished. A few weeks later, it is said that he died from exhaustion. You know, they they all sacrificed everything for freedom. The, The Declaration of Independence did not come free. These men sacrificed their lives. You remember this? When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve a political bond which they have committed with one, with another 
and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitles them, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that are among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That document was the Declaration of Independence signed in Congress on July the 4th, 1776, declaring America's freedom from the oppression that they felt, the the oppressive rule of England. And freedom has been the battle cry for this country for over 200 years now. The Bible says this. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Blessed. Blessed is the nation. So let's suppose that sometime this week you turn on the news, and I know that's a depressing thing, but sometime this week you turn on the news and heard these announcements come across our our airways. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has just issued a statement Divine providence, that's God, has given to our people the choice of their rulers. We get to choose. And it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians as their rulers. That seems like a fairy tale, doesn't it? That that would come over our airways right now. Then you heard... This come out of the of the news media. Inquiries by our reporters reveal that almost every state legislature has now passed a law requiring all elected officials to take this oath. They have to take this oath. I do profess faith in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ his only son, and I do acknowledge the holy scriptures of the Old Testament and the New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. Pipe dream. Then to top it off, you hear the report say this, legislation was passed today in Congress to affirm that the Congress of the United States approve of and recommends the Holy Bible to be used in the schools. You know, it's hard to imagine those things being said of in the United States today, but they were said. They were said. It was John Lay, the first chief justice and the father of the Supreme Court one of the primary authors of the Constitution who wrote, it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. And I would I would beg you to go and look at the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. You know what? There is no such thing in there as as separation of church and state. It's only implied. You know, I was listening to Charlie Kirk the other day, and someone was trying to push that on him, and he said, there is no such thing 
as a separation of church and state. What they were trying to accomplish was to make sure that there was no re- a national religion. That's what they wanted. They wanted a national, they didn't want a national religion because that's what they had run from in England because there was a national religion there. But it's always implied, but there is no, nowhere in there that talks about the separation of church and state. You know, it was the state of Delaware, along with many others, which required office holders to take an oath affirming their Christian faith before they could take the office that they were assuming. And not only did Congress in 1782 approve the use of the Bible in school, you know what they did? They used taxpayers' money to buy the Bibles, to put in the schools. That's what they did. And in 1844, when someone sued to remove them from the, the, the Supreme Court ruled this. They said, why should not the Bible and especially the New Testament be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly and so perfectly as from the New Testament? We've come a long way, folks. We've come a long way from our roots as Americans. You know, something President Obama had often said when he was, when he was the president was this. He would say this, and I heard him say this several times. He says, we are not a Christian nation. That's what he said. At least not just a Christian nation. You know, and for once, I guess I would have to agree with him. We are no longer solely a Christian nation. We are a diverse nation consisting of Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Wiccans, spiritualists, Catholics, Protestants, atheists. You know, but the fact is, the vast majority of Americans maybe even as much as 75%, according to some surveys, still identify themselves as Christians, and our nation was built upon Christian ideals and principles. These biblical principles, it is our Christian heritage that is slowly slipping away from America. And that's why I truly believe that we have seen that decline to the point where we are right now, that it's almost like anything goes in our country anymore. And it is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, for us to have to stand there and argue with someone that, that, that you gotta be a, you gotta be described as this certain pronoun. Or, or that there are 50,000 different genders besides just male and female, as the Bible says. And it's ridiculous to try to argue with that. Maybe what we need to do is we need to be praying that God would give us some common sense because I think that's been flushed down the toilet. You know, when Thomas Jefferson and our forefathers penned the words of the Declaration of Independence, they recognized certain God-given inalienable rights. Three are mentioned specifically, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, today... Americans' understand, understanding of, of those rights, I, I believe, has diminished. You know, at, at the time, those rights carried great principle and also great spiritual meaning. 
I believe they carry great spiritual meaning. And if we want the God of the Bible to be the God of this nation, as we often claim he is, then we have to realize, we have to realize what our founding fathers understood so well. That true life, true liberty, and true happiness can only be found one place, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do today is I want you to consider these inalienable rights which all men have been endowed by the Creator. And when I say all men, I'm talking about men and women, folks. The first inalienable right recognized by our forefathers is life. You know, Jesus said this, Jesus said in no uncertain terms in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, I was, I was telling, I was telling Jaronel about this, that I had, I was listening to, um, a lesson on that. And if you, if you go back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle, the outside, of that was called the way. Then the the holy place where where you know where the priest was was able to be was called the the truth, and it was in the holy of holies that place was referred to as the life. And see, here's the interesting thing: is when Jesus was crucified and the veil was torn, what that showed there was that Jesus was not only just the life; Jesus was the way. He was the truth, and he, beca- he became the life for all of us. It's all about Jesus. In other words, real lasting life can only be experienced through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus even said this in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he's talking about the sheep. You know, the sheep know my name. He said this, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it to the full. That's what he tells us. Another translation, uh, the Living Bible, the, the, the Living Bible talks about it this way. It says, My purpose is to give life in all of its fullness. Abundant life. Apart from Jesus, this life is no life at all. And we have to come to that conclusion, folks. You know, the founders of our nations understood that and they, they believed that and they died for that. They did. Unless we believe in Him and commit our lives into His hands, then this life has no real purpose or meaning. You know, our, our earliest settlers were people who came from, you know, they came here primarily looking for religious freedom. If you remember the pilgrims, they came here looking for freedom. But it was primarily in the atmosphere of God, not gold, that America was born. The hardy souls who sailed on the Mayflower in 1620 fled from tyranny and opposition. And it was on that Mayflower, if you remember, that they signed the, the Mayflower, the Mayflower Compact. Have you, have you read about that? The Mayflower Compact. They signed beneath the swinging lantern in the cabin of their ship. They proclaimed that they had come to the new world. 
for the glory of God and for the advancement, absolute advancement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they came here for. And for their Christian faith. In the early colonies, the first public building to be erected was a church building. It was a church house. And the first public exercise, what did they do? It was to worship the Almighty God. That was the first thing that they did. When sorrow came, as you know, they, they gathered at the church to appeal to God for help. When the bountiful harvest was filled and, and it filled their barns and they would gather at the church and they would bless His holy name for the, for the bounty. In 1643, as more and more people arrived on the shores of America, they joined together to form what they called the New England Confederation. The New England Confederation. They wrote their own constitution, which was the first constitution written in the New World. And it began with these words. This is what, this is what they said. We all came into these parts with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity and peace. They weren't allowed to do that in England. They had to follow what the Pope said. They had to follow whoever, whoever was, was the leader. They had to follow them. Remember, though, around 150 years have passed by from the time of the early settlers to the beginning of this nation, about 150 years. And, and you know, we're, we're not very proud of some of the things that happened during those times, those years. And as time passed, the original settlers, well, they died off. They died off. Many of their descendants were more concerned with increasing their wealth and comfortable living than being faithful to God and to God's word. And so as waves of, and, and wave after wave of immigrant, we're experiencing that right now in our country. Some say that as many as 8 million um, illegal immigrants have crossed in the last couple of years. It's a lot of people. But wave and wave of immigrants arrived. Many of them came from other, for other reasons and, and with entire different motives than the earliest settlers. And see what happened, the end result of that, of all that taking place, the earliest settlers dying off, not carrying on the traditions of what they had come here originally for, by 1730, only about 10% of people in the colonies attended church at all. About 10%. That was it. But then, something amazing started happening. Do you remember what it was? In 1734, beginning in 1734, a handful of preachers began to preach in the churches and in the streets and in the fields. So many people came to Christ, that era came to be known as what? Does anybody know? The what? The Great Awakening, that's right. It became known as the Great Awakening. Tens of thousands dedicated their lives to Jesus. Benjamin Franklin wrote this, It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that no one could walk through the town 
in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families on every street. Wow. So why am I telling you all this? Well, the reason is this, is because this great awakening was kind of like a precursor to the American Revolution. You know, our founding fathers, the the author of the Declaration of Independence, those who wrote our Constitution and Bill of Rights, those who put their lives on the line, who fought and died that we might be free, all these grew up and came into leadership while this great awakening was engulfing the land. I want you to listen. This is a prayer that our first president, General George Washington, wrote with his own handwriting in his own personal diary. Listen to how, listen to what he says. This is our first president. He says, he says, let my heart, gracious God, be so affected by your glory, with your glory and majesty, that I may discharge those weighty duties which thou requires of me. Again, I call on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ offered on the cross for me. Thou gavest thy son to die for me, and has given me assurance of my salvation. That's our first president. Wouldn't that be awesome if our current president could say and, and share that same prayer? And everyone before him and everyone after him. The first president of these United States acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the source of all life of all life. He knew and believed that it was only through Jesus that sin could be forgiven and eternal life could be inherited. Remember what John 10.10 said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, have it to the full. That's the first inalienable right. The second inalienable right, according to the Declaration of Independence, is liberty. And when I think of liberty, I think of Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was a great statesman and he was a great speaker. He was also a great patriot during the infancy of this nation. He was a lawyer. I don't know if you knew that. He was a lawyer. He defended the character under which the colonies were founded in America. He resisted the Stamp Act with these words. He said, Caesar has his Brutus, Charles I, his Cromwell, and George III may profit from their example. If this be treason, make the most of it. That's what he said. But you know what? His most famous speech is the one that just, I mean, it was a fiery speech, and it's the one that got everybody pumped up. His most famous speech, though, was before the Virginia Assembly in 1775 when British troops were advancing to enforce King George's rule on Virginia 
At the conclusion of one of the most fiery speeches ever delivered, Patrick Henry cried this. He said, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? That's what he tells us. Forbid it, Almighty God, forbid it. I know not what course others may take, but ask for me. Give me liberty or give me death. That's what he tells us. And I tell you what, that, that was one heck of a speech. And the fire of that, uh, of freedom was lit. And I pray and I hope that, that that still burns in our great nation today. You know, if you think about the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty stands right across from the island of Manhattan in New York. I remember when Sarah and I were, we were taking a cruise, we were going up to Canada to Halifax, we went right by the statue, right, by, right through that area there. And it, it was so interesting to see. And we went right by the, the World Trade Centers, and then it wasn't soon after that, um, three or four months later, that, that they were down, that they came down. But you know, the Statue of Liberty, it's, it's, it's across from the Manhattan Island in New York, and, and soldiers on their, on their return from overseas often speak in awe of the feeling that they have had as they sailed into the harbor and viewed the torch of freedom that Lady Liberty has in her hands. You know, to the Christian, the Statue of Liberty and the Cross of Jesus Christ I believe, have, have kindred meanings for us because he both symbolized the highest and noblest of freedoms and liberties for us. Both stand as beautiful and glorious you know, for, for liberated people, just, just marks for liberated people. Jesus came into this world on a mission of liberty. That's what he did. He said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's what he says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he said. Wow. You know, specifically... I think that the Bible teaches that there are at least three oppressions from which Jesus came to liberate us from. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, um, this, it says, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, I think that's wrong there. That's Romans 7, 6. Let me read it from here. It says, in the past, the law held us like prisoners, but our old selves died and we were made free from the law. So now we serve God in a new way with the spirit and not the old way with written rules. It's all about grace. It's not about following some written rules. And so, you know, the Old Testament law was a system of rules and regulations that only served to condemn us that's what it did. It, it condemned us. But Jesus, it says in Colossians chapter 2, 14, he canceled the debt, which listed all the rules 
we, we fail to follow and he took away the record with its rules and, and he nailed it to the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. And the Bible also says in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 2 from the New Living Translation, and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. That's what he tells us there. Hmm. This country, folks, was founded by people who trusted more in the liberty founded in Jesus than the liberty granted even by our own constitution. What we often forget is that declaring their independence from England, our forefathers made an equally strong declaration of dependence upon the Almighty God. That's what they were doing. The closing words of their declaration, Solomon state this, it says, with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, talking about God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's what it says at the end of that, the Declaration of Independence. It is important that we remember this very basic declaration of their dependence, their dependence on God, because the United States today is rapidly forgetting the God of our fathers, the God who gave this nation its birth and its greatness, the only source of true liberty. And I hope and pray that, that we as a, as a nation, that we do not forget who's in control here. The third inalienable right, as we get towards the end here, recognized by our forefathers was the pursuit of happiness. You know, happiness comes and goes from day to day. We know that. One day we're happy, one day we're not. You know, sometimes for some of us, it can go from hour to hour. You can be happy, you can be sad, you can be happy, you know, in and out. Situations and experiences can make us happy, it can make us sad. But in Jesus, our happiness, our happiness is not dependent upon outside forces. It should never be. The word often translated blessed in Jesus, you know, on the Sermon on the Mount actually means the word happy. You know, in the, in the International Children's Bible, I hope we were able to find that. Um, <clears throat> in the International Children's Bible, it translates that Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, it says this, those people who knew they have great spiritual needs are happy. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Those who are sad now are happy. God will comfort them. Those who are humble are happy. The earth will belong to them. Those who want to do right more than anything else are happy. God will fully satisfy them. Those who give mercy to others are happy. Mercy will be given to them. Those who are pure in their thinking are happy. They will, they will be with God. Isn't that awesome? Those who work to bring peace are happy. God will call them His sons. Those who are treated badly for doing good are happy. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. 
That's what he says there in these, in these, these seven verses there. You know, people all across this country, all across this country will, will, will spend their lives pursuing what I call this, this temporary sort of happiness. It's just a temporary thing, but that is all it is and will ever be is a pursuit. It will be a pursuit. They will never be satisfied. They will never be satisfied. They will never have enough. You know, that, that empty feeling will never be filled. You know, the, the pleasures and distractions of this world will never provide lasting joy or lasting happiness. It just won't. True happiness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And in Him, it can never be taken away. Emery S. Peck was someone who understood well the joy that could be found in Jesus. Here's what he writes. I want to share with you. He says, If the skies above you are gray and you're feeling so blue, if your cares and burdens seem great all the day through, there's a silver lining that shines in the heavenly land, he says. Look by faith and see it, my friend. Trust in his promises grand. Sing and you'll be happy today. Press along to the goal. Trust in him who leadeth the way. He is keeping your soul. Let the world know where you belong. Look to Jesus and pray. Lift your voice and praise him in song. Sing and be happy today. Wow. So true. So true. You know, psychologists tell us that people need three things to make them happy. Did you know that? Three things. We need three things to make us happy. You know what they are? Well, I'm going to tell you. Yeah, you know them now because you saw it there. (laughs) Number one is something to do. Number two is someone to love. And number three is something to look forward to. Makes sense, doesn't it? It really makes sense. Well, did you know that Jesus gives us all three? He gives us all three. Jesus gave us something to do, saying in John chapter 14, verse 12, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the same thing that I do. So there's something to do. And then Jesus gives us something to, or someone to love, saying in John 14, 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. So there's someone to love. And then the last one, Jesus gave us something to look forward to, saying in John 14, 2, this, he says, when every, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. There, Right there it says, there is more than enough room in my Father's home. More than enough room. If this were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there, and I am preparing a place. You know, if we look back to Genesis, it took six days to create all that we see here now. Six days. And then he rested on the seventh. Well, he's been working on heaven for like 2,000 years. Can you even imagine 
the place that he is creating for us, I am going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you will know the place where I'm going. Wow. That's pretty awesome. You know, only in Jesus can Americans and anybody else in this world find genuine, lasting happiness. If you try to find it anyplace else, it's just a pursuit and it's probably going to fail. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Again, I shared with you earlier, and I'll share with you again from Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation. If you really are a patriot, if, if you're genuinely concerned about America, if you earnestly want God to bless her, if you want, her to, if you want him to bless our country, then what you need to do is this. This is simple. Then live a life in harmony with the will of God. I think the failure of our country doesn't always come down on the politicians who make stupid decisions. It comes down on Christians who are not exercising their privileges. And that's what we need to do because only then does one truly have a right to sing this. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. I would sing it, but I want to spare you that. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam, God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my home sweet home. So as we celebrate again the birth of our nation, pray that our country might have a new birth of freedom, not a freedom, you know, not a, not a freedom from God. We want to depend upon God, which because it ultimately leads to slavery, but rather a freedom built upon God and upon His commandments, upon His word. Also, may each of us as individuals reaffirm our dependence, our dependence upon God. And then, as did the founding fathers of our country, I believe that we will find in him true life, true liberty, and true happiness. I guarantee. And let's not forget, though, that the Bible says this in Psalm 146, verse 5. It says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. How blessed is the one whose hope is in the Lord our God. Amen. Before the nation can find hope in God, you and I, we need to set that example of hope in God. Each of us 
has that opportunity today. Who knows what you're going to be doing over the next couple days? You know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of fireworks going off all around us. But I want to tell you, the greatest thing is the God of this nation. And if we want true life, true liberty, and true happiness, I hope and pray that we will put our trust and our hope and our whole self in him. That's what's going to make this nation great again. God-fearing people who love the Lord and who want to bring him back into this nation, back into our schools, back into our government. Jesus is calling. How will we respond to him today?